Well, surprise, uh, for those who have been joining me for a long time, you probably noticed that there was not that 45-second introduction that I have had as kind of a staple of many of my podcasts that I have done. Reason being is that on that, I've directed you guys to go to our website, hisgrove.com, to be able to find out more information about us as a ministry, but also for you to have a, a, an avenue to download some of these podcasts because it takes you directly to it. Well, that is no more uh, for various reasons, primarily just a lack of funds to be able to keep the website up. Um, That is now frozen and um, not accessible. So I'm going to have to come up with a new introduction. But um, we're going to continue in this series going through apologetics of the faith, which to me is one of the most dire needs of the church today. Um, It's something that I deal with almost seemingly daily. Um, and having to contend against, having to watch for my own self, having to teach whenever I'm teaching my children or whoever it might be that I'm coming to encounter with. I, I do a lot of teaching even just through text. Though that's not my primary source that I would like to do. It's a, an avenue that I have to be able to teach the Word of God. Apologetics is something is essentially the best way that I can describe it or that I know to describe it right now is using the Word to prove the Word. And that is what this series is going to be about. There's been many distortments of the Word of God um, over the years. And so in this series, I'm trying to take two, if I have time, um, three passages in Scripture uh, to go through and just reconcile back to what the text proves the text is stating, apologetically. And so I'm open to your suggestions. There's a lot of things, a lot, a list of verses and passages that I've got um, that I'm wanting to go through. And I'm roughly about halfway through that after this segment. So if you have suggestions, I would love to hear from you on that. So you can leave a comment or however that is that you're listening to this. Find a way to get in, in contact with me. Um, and I would love to hear from you on that for ideas. Today... We're going to be going over one that that requires a little bit more study um, and a little bit more knowledge of the extent of the word to be able to grasp kind of what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Now you will oftentimes hear this probably from the pulpit um, as there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that just on the surface Um, could be a very easy one to interpret according to how you want it to be interpreted. The problem is, contextually, there's only a specific way that that can be interpreted and that's oftentimes what we leave out. We leave out what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 starting in verse 18 primarily and going through the rest of chapter 7 going into then chapter 8 verse 1. And we also leave out studying what footnotes might say, because in the ESV Bible there is a footnote that says that some of the manuscripts include a a specific statement that I'll give in just a little bit, as well as the King James Version includes it. And we'll read that in just a little bit. But I want to give a breakdown briefly of what Romans 7, 18 and 19 is talking about. Essentially it's this, that there's nothing that is good in my flesh. Paul states that in verse 18. Verse 19, he goes on and he says, look, all the things that I want to do is he's talking about him present tense in the flesh. And I think a lot of times we miss this of what scripture teaches about, even if we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 3, it says that you can be in Christ, but still of the flesh. He says you can be in Christ 
and be an infant in Christ. You're newly born, you're still nursing, you're still on milk, and you're still of the flesh. That means that you act in fleshly type ways. You haven't been matured yet in the spirit. So you can be in Christ and be of the flesh. It's what the, the warning of Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14 is all about. To grow into maturity, to stop being milk-based. Because when you're milk-based and you're of the flesh, you're susceptible to the enemy. So Paul is talking about how he still has this flesh. Even though he's in Christ, even though he, he's been born again, even though he's matured, he still understands, I have this flesh that is in me. It's what he writes to the church in Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, in chapter 5, verse 16. Another common verse that I don't think we actually compute and bring together and reconcile with the rest of the verses. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, here's, here's the remedy. If you don't want to gratify the flesh, you need to walk by the Spirit. Something that God has given us access to through the person of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so a lot of people look at Romans seven eighteen and they just like, well, that's just my lot in life. Even as great as what Paul was, this was still his lot in life. He was just going to do the things he didn't want to do, and he was not going to do the things that he really wanted to do. His spirit was saying, yes, I want to do this. I have such a gumption to do it, but I just don't have the ability to do it. Woe is me, but you know what? Praise God, he just delivers me anyways, and he just gives me the hug in the mud and says, my child, it's okay. That's how most people interpret this passage. But let me just tell you, that's not how Paul is intending it to be interpreted. Listen to what he says in verse 18. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know, that was 17, backing up to that now in 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, I have a problem with that if I just take that on the surface. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do all things through Him, meaning Christ, who strengthens me. You see, Paul says that I do have the ability. I have the ability to not gratify the desires of the flesh. I have to choose to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, to utilize the grace that He has given me access to, the power of heaven, the divine influence, not the just unmerited favor as is oftentimes posed today. It is the divine influence, and I have to humble myself, which means I have to do something to get that activated to my account. It has been offered to me through the person of Jesus Christ, and I did nothing to, to merit that. But to utilize it, it requires something of me. Therefore, it cannot be just simply unmerited favor. It is the divine influence of heaven. And Paul says, in order for me to be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in the spirit, I need to rely on the grace of God, which is the power of God, the strength of God through the person of Jesus Christ. So I have been given access to the ability to live out a God-like life. But Paul says, but I understand that my flesh is still there and it's still knocking on that window trying to get in every single moment of every day. And if I choose to put flesh on the throne, I am incapable of living out the Christ-like life. So Paul gives us the remedy in Galatians 6 or in Galatians 5. You want to put to death the deeds of the flesh then you choose to walk by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit and He will put those deeds to death. And so this is important because we have to understand that Paul is talking about flesh and spirit here, even in chapter 7. 
He's not talking about this as just my lot in life and woe is me. This just is what I'm always going to be. No, because 1 Peter 2, I believe it's in what, 23, maybe 24, somewhere in that range. It says that by his stripes you were healed. That is a Greek word that means that you have been made whole. You are not just a broken sinner. You have been remedied. You have been reconciled. You have been given the ability of Christ to be able to live out the Christ-like life. You no longer have to live as that broken sinner who you were prior to coming to know Christ. God has given His ability to live out the godly life through Christ Jesus. You and I possess it, but we have to choose it. We have to choose to walk by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And this is what Paul is trying to get at. He says, so who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from this flesh that wants the throne? Praise be to God that through Christ Jesus, I can gain victory over my flesh. Not in some like way in the distance off on the other side of heaven. But today, here and now. And that is why he goes on. And he says this in Romans 8.1. I mean, please understand what I'm talking about here. Because if you don't understand that, then you will not get what Romans 8.1 is talking about. If you think that Paul's just referencing he's a broken sinner, he's always going to be a victim to the flesh, the flesh is always going to have reign over his life, then you're not going to get what Romans 8.1 is talking about. But if you understand that Paul is saying, in my flesh, I cannot achieve the Christ-like life. But you couple other verses together with the same author in Philippians 4.13 and the same author in Galatians 5.16-17 who says that now in Christ I have access to the ability of Christ to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So I have this wrestle within me between flesh and spirit and I have the choice of which one I'm going to obey. And if I choose the flesh to be put on the throne, I will be a miserable replica of Jesus Christ. I will not have the ability to carry out the Christ-like life. But if I choose to yield myself to the Spirit of God and I choose to set my mind according to the things of the Spirit, then I have everything that I need for a life of godliness. That His divine power has given me everything that I need to put on the divine nature of being Christ-like in this life. The choice is ours. And that's why it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, and check this out, here's what it goes on to say in many of the manuscripts, including the King James Version and the footnote of the ESV that says it's included in many manuscripts. Also upheld in verses 4. For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. (laughs) Did you catch that? Because it makes all the difference. For those who walk not according to the flesh. So let me put it in in layman's terms for you. If you walk according to the flesh, you can come under condemnation, even if you're in Christ Jesus. But if you walk according to the Spirit, then there is absolutely no condemnation that can come upon you. Now we, I believe, need to understand what condemnation is. Katakrima is the Greek word that's used here, and it's, it's essentially, you find it from its root of katakrino, and that's going to come into play here in just a little bit, because did you know that there's actually five other times in the New Testament that's specific to believers? It's, it's without refutability. Specific to believers, it says that they fell under condemnation, or that they could fall under condemnation. That means that if I'm to take Romans 8.1 on the surface and say there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ, that I'm now discounting, diminishing, and even ignoring other passages of Scripture that says that a believer, including Peter, came under condemnation. 
I think it's important to know that catechrema essentially is a very severe form of a, a judgmentary sentence. I don't even know if judgmentary is a word, but I just made it one. <laughs> it, it's essentially as you can come under judgment. Okay? And there's severities to that judgment. It's like we can have judgments upon one another and we can be fruit inspectors, which is what the word actually means. Or we could go as severe as what First Corinthians chapter 5 says and casting somebody out to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But the point is, this word indicates a harsh judgment. Now Romans 14.23 I'm going to try to flip to these without it um, taking too long because I do want to read them to you guys. 14.23 says this, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Now he's referencing believers here. It's irrefutable. He says because he, the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He says you can actually, knowing the right thing to do, if, if you do not proceed... Eat, knowing that, hey, my conscience does not bear me witness that I can eat this, but I go ahead and eat anyways, you can come under condemnation. Now the word that's used there is katakrino, which is the root word of katakrima. It's the same concept. It's still a judge, a judgment, I almost said judgmentary, I don't think that's a word. Um, it is still a judgment due to sin that you are going to face. You will come under a judgment of sin, which, whole side story, means your past, present, future sins have not been forgiven when you came into Christ. If I can come into any sense of a judgment due to sin, then that means that they have not been already forgiven. Now, that's a whole other side story that maybe we'll talk about Another time, maybe Romans 3.25 would be the one that I go into that one because that's also a very misunderstood um, passage. Or just go to my podcast that I did over Romans chapter 3. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. I know this one off the top of my head, at least what is being stated there, so I'm not going to read it for you guys. But it's essentially whenever Paul has to confront Peter. Because whenever he's there with the Gentile Christians, he's socializing with them, he's associating with them, he's probably laughing it up with them, doing things with them that he would do with any other Christian. But then whenever the Jews came in, the Jewish Christians who were there with James, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he retreated back to his days of Judaism in which the Jews and the Gentiles were separate. And you know what? Paul says that he, st he withstood him to his face. Why? And he says this exact word. Because he stood condemned. Now that's a word of katagonosko. It means that he's blamable and at fault. It's a lesser degree of what condemnation is. However, the word condemnable is still used there. Why? Why in Romans 14 and in Galatians 2.11? Because both times it was somebody walking according to the flesh. So they faced a degree of condemnation. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 6 says this, and somebody who is seeking to be an overseer, somebody who's of the faith, somebody who wants to lead God's church, it says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Which is interesting because this is the exact root word of katakrima. It's krima. And isn't that fascinating? The same word 
minus the suffix of kata, which is just an intensifying word. The same exact word is used about a believer who's been a believer for a while and is looking to be an overseer in the church. We can't say that that's not really a believer. And yet he can still fall in condemnation. Why? Because he would walk according to the flesh. 1 Timothy 5 verse 12 says this. I'll start in 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. This is referencing the widow program in the church of taking care of widows who are under the age of 60. It says don't enroll them in that because if they are still at a marriable age and they are still able to bear children, then they could wander away from a previous commitment of celibacy of devoting themselves to the church solely. And it says that they could wander away from their faith and incur condemnation, which, by the way, is the Greek word krima. Again, same thing. James 5.12, you're going to find that this word is a word hupokristis, uh, or krisis that's used here, which just simply means hypocrisy. And it's to let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. Who's James referencing? He's referencing the church. He's referencing believers. How is it that any of these people in these five passages will fall under a degree of condemnation? By walking in the flesh. You see, Romans 8.1 is, is not saying that you or I, who are in Christ, cannot come under any semblance of condemnation. What it is stating is that if I choose to walk by the Spirit, I cannot come under condemnation. But if I choose to walk according to the flesh, I can. It's actually a very simple teaching. And Paul gives us a warning in Galatians 6, 7-10. through 10, In which he, by the way, it's very important to, to take note of the small words in Scripture. The if words, the thens that are there, the we's. Paul includes himself in this warning. He says in Galatians 6, 7-10, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will they also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. Notice you have to actually do something to reap eternal life. It's not just something that's unconditionally given to you simply because you put faith in Jesus. The promise has been given to you, but you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. That's Hebrews ten thirty six. So he says, if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap eternal life. And then I think it's fascinating what Paul says right after this. In Galatians chapter 6, and I'm gonna, I, I was quoting that one from memory, um, and I'm going to say it in verse 9. Pick it up there. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap. He doesn't end it there. He doesn't say, hey guys, the promise is coming no matter what you do. He says, if we do not give up. What is Paul talking about here? He says, you have a job to do. And if you're going to sow to the flesh, then you've got to understand, you can reap corruption. You could reap condemnation. If you sow to the Spirit, and you're doing what you're supposed to, and you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. You'll get what you sow. You will reap what you sow. And then Paul includes himself. He doesn't just say, hey, brothers, 
That, that time is coming. Keep your eyes to the horizon. He's going to deliver us. He's going to redeem us. He says he will do all of those things and uphold his promise if we do not give up. Now that's another one that seems to be missed today. As long as 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 in which Paul says of himself, nobody else. He doesn't even say we or us. He says I would be disqualified. Now that's a Greek word, adokimos. It means unfit for running the race. What's Paul talking about in 24 through 27? Attaining the imperishable wreath in the end. He says, so run that you may obtain it. Now this is opening a bag of worms to a lot of people, I'm sure, that are like, wait a second. Are you trying to say that salvation is something that, that has to be preserved by me? Yes, I absolutely am saying that. You have to maintain your position in Jesus Christ all the way to the end. It's not a, it's not a, a losing salvation because of your performance or lack thereof. Though that attributes to it. It's about your position in Jesus Christ. This is why 2 Peter 1 talks about supplementing to your faith good works. Because you will reap what you sow. And so please do not use Romans 8.1 in an insufficient or incomplete manner. To just try to lead somebody to say, guys, when you prayed that prayer and you came into Jesus Christ, then there can be no condemnation upon you ever again. Because that would be a lie. And you are distorting the truth of God and the warnings that Paul even gives to us in the scriptures. You're distorting them, if not even ignoring them, and you will give an account. So, Romans 8.1, the correct way of understanding that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who choose to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Because if I walk according to the flesh, I can reap corruption. If I walk according to the Spirit, I will reap eternal life. It is really that simple. And you're doing a disservice and an injustice to that scripture by leaving those truths out. The next one we're going to do is James chapter 1, 13 through 15. Now this is one that goes into a little bit of what I was just talking about. And we're going to have to do a little bit of, of diving on this one, though it won't take quite as long. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We'll call that the flesh. Oftentimes, I think we want to call it a sin nature. Let me just tell you, you don't have necessarily a nature to, a, a, a sinful nature. You have your flesh. I don't see, as I've studied through scripture, and maybe some of it's just semantics, I see sin as something external. Sin is something that you do. You are a sinner because you give precedence to your flesh, which then commits the sin. Sin is something that's actually outside of us. Genesis 4, 6 says that sin is crouching at the door as desire is for us, but we must rule over it. Something we couldn't do until Christ. Sin is crouching outside the door, knocking on that door, crouching there so you don't see it. And it is waiting for anyone to open the door to it. And it has a desire for you. It wants to rule you. But praise God that he has given us the victory through Jesus Christ that we are no longer under sin's dominion. Or let me say it like this. We don't have to choose to be under sin's dominion. We can choose to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. 
We can choose to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. But we see it right here very plainly that each person, when they are tempted, (coughs) excuse me, they are not tempted by God. God tempts no one. He will lead you into temptation as a test, as He did to Jesus. And a lot of people wrestle with that one, but that's exactly what the Word says, that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Who led Him there? God did. God will lead you into temptation, but he will himself not be the one who tempts you. But it says that each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, let me clarify this real quick. James is writing to the church. He's not addressing unbelievers here. How do I know that? Is because I'm already dead in my sins and my trespasses as an unbeliever. I can't give birth to sin. Sin is already something that has overtaken me. Sin is already something because of my flesh and lack thereof of the spirit. Sin is something that I am ruled by as an unbeliever. I can't give birth to sin. Sin is something that already has dominion over me. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm already dead in my trespasses and sins. So the only person who can give birth to sin is a believer. And he says, and sin when it is fully grown, which is a a Greek word, apoteleo. It means to be perfect and complete and entirely perfect. When it has fully grown, it brings forth death. Oftentimes, we like to talk about the dangers of sin. and We like to talk about how sin can be such a damaging thing to our, our walks with Christ. And it very well is. But we oftentimes ignore this concept of what it means to die. Of what this death is being implied as. Now, understanding this. In the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. In the Greek... From my studies on this, there are roughly about five different words used for death in that. You've got teluete, you've got, um, man, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't know exactly how to pronounce these, but apoktino, which means to, it's it's a verb, which means to slay, it's the act of killing. You have honoreo which is the act of a violent killing, also a verb. You have apothenesco, which is to die or to be dying, which is also a verb. It's used in Revelation. I'll explain that one in just a second. Then you have necros, which is an adjective, which means without life. It's a description of what is taking place in you because of sin or stagnation. This is why it says in Revelation, (coughs) excuse me, I believe it's, I believe it's chapter 2, where he brings this up. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, I think that's fascinating because how is it that somebody is dead and is about to die? Have you ever thought about that? Well, there's two different Greek words that's used, apothenesco and necros that's used there. And essentially what it means is, is you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, meaning you are in the process of dying. It's not that you are dead In your trespasses as an unbeliever, Jesus is writing to his church. They have a reputation of being alive, but they are actually dying. And he says, so wake up and strengthen what remains that has not fully died yet. That sin might be growing. It might be getting to that point of being perfect. 
And when it says that when sin is fully grown, it might be getting to that point and is about to die. You're not there yet. And that necros is a word that means to be without life because of that sin or stagnation. And so the, the point that he's referencing there is that there is degrees of death. And what I find is interesting is that James 1, 13-15, that word that he says there, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death, it uses, in my estimation, the most serious of all the words. It's a word, thanatos. And thanatos simply means death with misery in hell, whether it's a physical death or whether it's spiritual all implied concepts and ideas of this word imply a future misery in hell. I might be stepping on some toes here, but I'm just simply giving you what the scriptures teach. It's irrefutable that he's referencing believers in James 1, third, um, yeah, James 1, 13 through 15. Irrefutable. You can't deny that he's referencing and writing to believers. And he specifically says that when sin, not when you stumble and sin, but when sin becomes fully Grown, it brings forth death. Let me read something in Proverbs chapter 2, 16 through 22. And I think this is fascinating because I'm going to correlate it to something in the New Testament in Jude, in verse 12. That's there in Jude. And here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 2, again, starting in verse 16 through 22. This is Solomon's letter to his sons to try to keep them from stumbling and straying away from the faith that they had as Jews. He says this, So you, Solomon writing to his sons, will be delivered from the forbidden woman. And I want you to understand that the context prior to this is that it's seeking out wisdom like precious jewels, like fine silver. And then discretion will come to your heart. The fear of the Lord will come into your heart. And you'll have understanding and it will keep you from all these things. And that's why he says so. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death. And her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back. And check out the terminology. Nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good. And keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright, which is a Greek word that means those who are on the right and the narrow. It's yeshar, the Hebrew word. For the upright will inhabit the land. And those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous will be rooted out of it. That treacherous means those who would transgress or be unfaithful and act deceitfully against the covenant of God. The treacherous, the ones who commit treason against their king. That means you belong to the kingdom, but then you disassociate and begin to belong to a different kingdom. He says the treacherous will be rooted, which is a Hebrew word in the sock. It means to be torn away or plucked from it. So there's two elements in Proverbs chapter 2 that I want you to see. And one could argue, it's Old Testament, but I'm about to show you something in the New Testament that has the same correlating effect. Is that you have to keep to the path of life. Because if you wander from that path by listening to that adulterer with the smooth words, is what James 4 talks about, I encourage you to go read it. 
If you listen to that adulterer and you go off and you violate the covenant of God with her. He says, you might not regain the paths of life because you will be rooted out. You will have death. Listen to what he says in Jude verse 12. Let me get to it real quick. He says, these are hidden reefs. After comparing them to angels who fell, who did not stay in their proper position of authority, but they chose to follow Satan. He says this, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. And then check this out. Twice dead, uprooted. Did you you catch the same exact thing? Let me ask you this. These people in Jude, it says they're twice dead, but they're still alive. How is that? How is it that these people are twice dead? They've died twice, but they're still alive. How is that even possible? Let me tell you what I, what I would see on this. And I believe that it correlates with all of scripture. John 3 says that a person must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. You must be born of the spirit if you want to inherit eternal life. So we have this concept of being born of the flesh. And we are dead. Right? In our trespasses and sins. We need redemption. We need redeeming. So then we become born of the Spirit. And we get redeemed and reconciled into the covenant of God that we have with Him through Jesus Christ. So we've only died once at that point. The only way to still be alive but to have died twice is to have died after being born of the Spirit. Not a physical death, but a spiritual one. That's the only possible way. To be twice dead is to have died of the Spirit. And this, I believe, is where Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 comes in. This is where even Hebrews chapter 12, at the very end of it, when he goes, let no one among you be like Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright. And afterwards, when he sought repentance, even though he sought it with tears, he found none. He could not regain the path of life. Why? Because he gave up the birthright that he had, which was symbolic for the present age through Christ. As being the firstborn among many brothers, we have a birthright. And it's called the birthright with the blessing of the firstborn. And Esau sold it. He had it. It was his. But he sold it. And afterwards, when he sought repentance, he found none. Because this is a serious one. And I think for too long, because it's not comfortable to our way of thinking, we want to think that once I get saved, I'm always saved. God keeps me and I don't have any responsibility in it. But let me just tell you, that's not the truth. You can go read Romans 2, 3 through 5. You could go read Galatians 6, 7 through 10 again. You could go read Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, in which I don't believe this is a salvific passage. It's a judgment passage. You can go read the rest of what Hebrews 6 talks about. Because it's littered all throughout. But primarily in, in James 1, 13 through 15, he says it very point blank. If you are going to get to a place where you allow sin to become fully grown, it will bring forth 
death. And that's not a physical death, as many people think 1 John 5 is referencing, because that, let me just, I don't even have time to go into that one, nor do I even know if I have the patience right now to. It's not referencing a physical death. It is referencing a spiritual death. And it's something that we have to start warning once again. Again, I don't believe that it is solely based on your performance, that if you sin, you're done, like some people would believe. What I believe is that our position is secure in Christ as we abide and remain in Him. So it's not about your performance in the end, though you will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 makes it very clear. No, you have not been forgiven of all your past, present, future sins. You have been wiped away. Your past sins have been wiped away. You have been cleansed from all those things you did in the times of your ignorance. God overlooked it. Through the blood of Christ, He overlooked it. Moving forward, once you become enlightened to truth and what sin actually is, then He says, then you become accountable to it. But praise God, that's why 1 John 1, 9 says in the present tense, 60 years after John's conversion, that he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that I can have a righteous or an unrighteous mark against me. This concept of imputed righteousness, I don't believe to be a biblical concept because the rest of scripture doesn't uphold it. Again, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't say if we confessed our sins... He was faithful and just. He uses present tense terminology. And he says, if we confess our sins now, he will forgive us. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That stain of unrighteousness is what 2 Peter 3.14 talks about. Which says, be, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Or what Philippians 1.9-10 talks about when it says, approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I could stand before him with unrighteous marks against me if I do not confess my sins and repent of them. That does not negate my salvation because my salvation is secured in the person of Jesus Christ. But my performance can hinder my position. This is why it talks about, for the sake of your prayers, be self-controlled and alert and sober-minded in all things. 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4. This is why he talks about in chapter 3, verse 7, when he talks about husbands, honor your wives as weaker vessels for the sake of your prayers. Because if I choose to walk in unrighteousness, my position can be hindered. My relationship with him can be hindered. And if I allow my performance to, to um, degrade to such a level where I allow sin to become fully grown... And it brings forth death. Thanatos. And we've got to start taking these things seriously. I don't claim to have all the answers and all this stuff. But what I do is I make sure that before I start to try to um, declare something as the truth of God's word. I try my best to make sure it fits in the fullness of the text. And I have studied and studied and studied with an apologetic mindset. And I believe that God has given me insight into understanding because He has looked upon my efforts and He has looked upon my heart in it to want to know the truth. And He has said that I will give it to you because Proverbs 8.17 says that I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. And I have sought him diligently with an open mind to say, I don't care what your word teaches. 
if it conflicts with what I want. I lay that down. I want to believe only and trust in only what your word teaches and I will believe that. So I know this was a heavy hitter probably for some. But this is what it teaches. This is what the word of God in its fullness says. Not at the expense of other passages, but inclusive of them. I'm well aware of 1 John. I'm well aware of John 10. I'm well aware of many of these passages that people who I would say are part of the OSAS movement, the once saved, always saved movement that's out there. I'm well aware of what those say. The difference is, is I don't ignore them. I seek to include them with the rest of scripture, with the lens of the context that's there in the passage so that I can understand God's truth in fullness. I'm not saying I don't have much to learn. But what I will say is that God has already taught me much. And I praise Him for that, though it's made life difficult because there's oftentimes I can't listen to sermons without filtering almost every single word through the Word of God. And you're like, well, that's a great thing. It is. It is a beautiful thing because there's discernment and protection involved in that. But it also means that I cannot just sit and listen to somebody without filtering everything at the chance that they're teaching falsely. And sometimes I do. I just want to sit and I just want to listen and, and just be fed. But the problem is, and it's not a problem. I, I, maybe it sounds like I'm complaining about it. I don't mean to be seeming like I'm complaining about it. I will say it just, it can be difficult because I filter every breadcrumb through the mesh of God's word. Sometimes that gets, that gets difficult to do over and over and over and over again. But praise God that he has allowed me access to be able to do that. And he has you as well. You filter everything I say on this podcast channel through that wire mesh of his word. But you better not be ignoring or twisting passages to suit your wants. Because you will give an account. Trust me. The word says it. Don't think that you get a free pass and that one day you're going to stand before him and he's just going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you don't give an account for things. Because the word clearly states that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for everything that we have done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Romans 14.12 says you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Those are two different judgment seats. One, you're going to give an account for your deeds. The other one, you give an account for your position. And if your name is written in that book of life, then you get in. But don't think that it comes without the giving account for your deeds. Y'all be blessed.